Thank you for joining us for Listen NGI Endoscopy. Throughout the series, Dr. Jonathan Buscaglia hosts world-renowned expert clinicians to discuss the latest developments in gastroenterology-based diseases and the use of GI endoscopy in their diagnosis and management. This podcast is brought to you by the American Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, home to more than 14,000 members worldwide and the leading voice for GI endoscopy. We thank our sponsor, Cook Medical, for making this series possible. Welcome back to the podcast, listeners. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Biscalia. I'm the Chief of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Stony Brook University on Long Island and Professor of Medicine at the Renaissance School of Medicine. And this week, I'm pleased to be talking to our guest, Dr. Amandeep Shergill, who is Professor of Medicine at UCSF and the San Francisco VA Medical Center. And Amandeep is an expert in the area of endoscopic-related injuries and ergonomics with endoscopy. And she's really kind of led the way in this part of our field over the past several years. So I'm super excited to talk with her today. Amandeep, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, you bet. So this is a topic that just keeps kind of, whether you like it or not, I feel like just getting in your face more and more, um, almost forcing you to be cognizant of it if you weren't already, um, in my opinion, over the past several years. And I and as I continue to do endoscopy, uh, I feel like this is becoming more and more relevant. And so that's why I wanted to have this discussion with you. You know, when I look at this information in the literature, I see uh, two things. I see them talking about work-related musculoskeletal disorders, and then, you know, what that means, and also endoscopy-related injuries. So, Amadeep, you know, just if you don't mind for the listeners, what is this stuff? Define it for us so that we have a better understanding as we start talking about this. Absolutely. So, um, I'm glad that everyone is thinking about this now. You know, I've spent the last 15 years trying to get people to think about this, and most importantly, to try and get endoscope companies and device companies to think about this, because really, um, all of this starts with us as endoscopists, the more user-centered design. And so, when we think about what work-related musculoskeletal disorders are, there are injuries or disorders of the muscles, ligaments, tendons, nerves, and joints that occur because of the work environment and because of how we are working. And, you know, most typically we would think about, you know, workers' compensation claims and the slips, trips, and falls that would result sort of as something acutely happening at work. And that's different from the work-related musculoskeletal disorders, which is really the cumulative loading that's happening to the body. And so what's happening is like the external loads of either the tools that we're using, like our endoscopes or the environment that we're working in, like in our endoscopy suites, sort of over time, depending on how repetitively we're doing it, how frequently we're doing it, the kinds of postures we're using while we're in these um, in the work environment, as well as how much force is required to interact with the tools and in the work environment. Over time, over can overcome the internal loads and tissue tolerances of our muscles, ligaments, tendons, and joints. And the first sign of that is gonna be pain. And that pain is a sign that there's some kind of microtraumatic injury happening. Um, and it can actually present as either pain, discomfort, numbness, weakness, tingling. Um, but that if we don't pay attention to those symptoms and over time, that can lead to tissue degeneration and finally tissue failure. Mm. And so it's something called the um, fatigue failure theory. The idea that every tissue, if it's repeatedly loaded, 
will fail via a process of sort of like local and progressive tissue damage. And so one way to visualize this is, for instance, if you were to take a paperclip and you were to unfold and fold a paperclip, after a few times, you're going to start seeing that metal fraying, and eventually that paperclip is going to break. Mm-hmm. And that's an, an extreme example kind of of what's happening in our body, that we're undergoing sort of like this cumulative damage that eventually can lead to, to failure. Hmm. So is it so is it fair to say that um, endoscopy related injuries are sort of within the bucket of, of work related muscular disorders or? Absolutely. So okay. with endoscopy related injuries, it's the work related musculoskeletal disorders that are happening as a result of performing endoscopy and often endoscopy suites that have not, again, been designed with the end user in mind. Um, and so when we think about the risk factors for both work-related musculoskeletal disorders and endoscopy-related injuries, it's repetitive high-force um, movements, especially if it's done in awkward postures or with static postures. Um, and particularly if we're thinking about distal upper extremities, it's percent time spent in forceful pinch. And we've now been able to you know, have multiple survey-based studies that show that there's a high prevalence of injury in endoscopists. And biomechanical studies that provide sort of a rationale for the endoscopes actually being a cause of a lot of the distal upper extremity issues, for instance. Wow. So the natural question then I'm sure for most is going to be how common is this? Um, I would imagine that we're, that maybe if there's listeners who are in the first few years of their career or even trainees, they may be saying, ah, I don't know, this is, you know, how likely is this? Come on. And then I would bet that there's maybe some more seasoned uh, veterans out there who are shaking their head saying, yes, yes, I have this, I have this. So, I mean, how common are we talking about? Uh, so unfortunately, it's too common. Uh, even actually amongst fellows, there have been multiple survey studies now done even of fellows that document the high prevalence of injury with unfortunately like a real lack of ergonomic education happening in fellowship. But if we look at um, practicing providers, um, probably the largest study to date was the one that was published by Dr. Powell et al. in the ACG Women's Committee, uh, where they um, incorporated data from almost 1,700 endoscopists. And they found a prevalence of 75% of endoscopists responding to the survey reporting endoscopy-related injury, and that um, was essentially equal between male and female endoscopists. So that's a really high number. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, what are the biggest risk factors then for these endoscopy-related injuries? I mean, I can, off the top of my head, I'm sure I could come up with a few, but you're, you know, I mean, um, what do we start, what do we, what do we want people to know about early on in their career, you know, as potential risk factors or ways that we can mitigate, you know, problems down the road? What, What do we need to be looking out for? So again, the risk factors are going to be the fact that we're using a scope that wasn't designed with the endoscopist in mind. So the high force repetitive movements, often in non-neutral postures that are required to hold the control section and manipulate that insertion tube. And again, especially if it's done in an endoscopy suite that hasn't been, that you're not able to adjust for the, the breadth of users. Mm. And so the main thing that we want to do is make sure um, that we're ensuring adjustability of the endoscopy suite. So, you know, the most important determinant of your overall posture is going to be where your monitor is. Okay. That monitor should be directly in front of you, just at or below eye height. Okay. Um, and, and so it needs to be adjustable really to accommodate. We, when we talk in ergonomics about accommodation, it's that smallest fifth percentile female to that largest 95th percentile male should be able to sort of utilize that tool or that work environment, and they should be able to do so comfortably, efficiently, and effectively. And so that monitor needs to be adjustable so that it can accommodate that fifth percentile female all the way up to that 95th percentile male height. Um, and the resting eye angle is about 15 to 25 degrees below eye height. And so ideally you want that monitor sort of just below your eye height so that your resting eye angle falls on the middle of the monitor. Again, right in front of you. 
And you want that bed to be just at or below elbow height. And that's gonna ensure that you have a neutral shoulder, elbow and back posture. So the adjustability of the room is kind of a key component of it. Um, when it comes to thinking about the scope, um, unfortunately there are, again, like was not designed with the endoscopist in mind. And, and I want us to all actually be really mad about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I want us to like let the endoscope and the device companies know that it's not okay. Because, you know, we're kind of forcing ourselves to figure out how to use this tool, again, that wasn't designed for us. When we think about the endoscope, the current control section and insertion tube design, I mean, it really hasn't changed that much since the 1980s when it came out, right? Right. Think about where technology has come. Think about our phones. Think about our cars, right? right. No one would ever think to drive a car where you couldn't adjust the seat or the steering wheel and it couldn't, you know, for instance, you couldn't reach the brakes, right? That would never make it past production, never make it past the design phase. And yet here we are driving these endoscopes on a daily basis through the human body that were not designed with the user in mind. And oftentimes the smaller hands can't even reach the dials and the forces that are required to turn the dials or the insertion tube really are leading to high risk of injury. Um, so we really should be mad that the endoscope companies haven't done more to yeah. address the issues. Yeah. So I have to confess, I in preparation for this podcast, I did a little spying and I saw a lecture. It was on YouTube, actually, that you gave a couple of years ago. I think it was 2019. And it was this great lecture on talking about exactly what you're talking about. And I saw this amazing thing. And please elaborate for us. It was something about the force of a woman's hand you know, the abilities of her hand to create a certain, you know, level of force versus, you know, a man at such an age. Can you go back and, because I thought that was fascinating uh, as it relates to this topic. Yeah, I think that unfortunately women are at a distinct disadvantage when it comes to men in terms of interacting with the endoscope. Um, and that's actually, uh, you know, when we talk about the survey-based studies, while they didn't show a difference between male and females in, ter in terms of overall prevalence of injury, um, the majority of females actually were experiencing distal upper extremity injuries as compared to men who complained more of low back pain. Mm. And so part of that likely is related to the fact that women have a distinct biomechanical disadvantage when interacting with the scope. So the most important determinant of strength is going to be sheer muscle mass. And that's where men have an advantage. Mm -hmm. uh, they have about 20 pounds more muscle mass than women do. And that translates to women having about 50% of the force generation ability that men do. Um, when we think about women um, at their strongest, we're sort of at our strongest in our 20 to 30s, but even at our strongest, we're only as strong as 70 to 80 year old men. And Jonathan, I don't know how many 70, 80 year old men, you know, that are still scoping, <laughs> maybe some, uh, but even many. when we think about like our, you know, most elite female athletes, like the athletes who are doing um, very intensive hand sports, uh, yeah. the strongest female athletes, they're only as strong as the 30th percentile male. Wow. So the majority of women are weaker than even sort of, you know, the, the average male. And so when we talk about women trying to manipulate these dials and, and manipulate the insertion tube, and already they have a smaller hand size, so they're really struggling in order to reach the dials and reach, you know, to interact with the insertion tube. So our biomechanics to start with are forcing us into non-neutral postures in order mm. to hold and manipulate the scope. And then when we try and generate that force, uh, we're working at this biomechanical disadvantage both because of the non-neutral postures we've assumed and, and the fact that we are starting out with um, sort of overall less muscle mass and less force generation ability. So I do think that women are a distinct disadvantage here. Wow. So that's, that's fascinating. So one of the things that you said that really I think is interesting is, you know, the height of the bed uh, and where the monitor is. 
And it's like, it sort of blows my mind. I remember being in training and I was learning, I think it was in my fourth year fellowship, I was trying to learn EUS and I was using an old mechanical radial scope on a TV that was about 15 feet away from me in the corner of a room, um, looking way up and flexing, I guess, extending my neck to look at that for a year, basically. Um, and even at that time, I do remember coming home at night and having like basically, you know, pain in the back of my neck from doing that. Um, what and about the radial scope, Jonathan, that had the motor on top of the control section? Yes. So like the yeah. So super heavy, yeah, super heavy, exactly. super heavy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but my left bicep was pretty toned at the end of that year. So I was pretty fired up about that. <laughs> um, well, I trained on that same EUS scope just, so yeah. you know, and I can say that I for sure was not as toned as you were. So imagine how I was doing during that time frame. <laughs> oh my God. I remember, I remember when we got our first electronic radial uh, EUS scope and it was like a fight at a, who could who could use it and the fellows always got the last uh straw on that one <laughs> but um so what about okay so we talk about height of the bed we talk about angle of the monitor i love what you said about elbows on the right you said the level of the elbow uh just at or below elbow height okay. your, your ideal goal is to have again a neutral shoulder elbow and back postures if that bed is too high so like i scope very frequently with fellows who have the bed a little bit higher because most of them are taller than me. Yeah. And if I'm take the scope from them, even for a few minutes, like I can tell when I haven't lowered that bed because I'll have shoulder pain. Mm. My shoulders will be abducted. And if the bed is too low, you're going to be bent over and that can contribute to low back pain. I'd say one caveat to that. And Dr. Raju actually has a series of beautiful lectures on YouTube as well related to ergonomics. Um, he talks about how it's important to bring the patient sort of to the edge of the bed. Mm. And to line up kind of like the orifice that we're going to scope with our umbilical cord to make sure that we sort of have the full movement of the scope that we can leverage um, in terms of tip deflection. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I, you know, because I think if the patient is, you know, six, eight, 12 inches from the edge of the bed, you're sort of bending over a little bit trying Correct. to get closer to them. Um, any, any utility in using those cushion mats on the floor? I see some endo units have that. Yeah, so the cushion mats are really helpful in um, minimizing static postures. So what happens with a static posture um, is that your, your muscles are contracted because you're holding that posture, but because your muscles are contracted, blood flow can't get into the muscle. So you're not getting oxygen to the muscle, you're not getting nutrients to the muscle, and you're not taking away waste from the muscle. If you can convert a static posture to a dynamic posture, then you can the blood flow needs of the muscle can be matched by the blood that can now come into the muscle because of the contraction and relaxation that's happening. And so you can get oxygen nutrients in and waste out. And so we can get less, you know, improve muscle mechanics and, and decrease fatigue by converting static postures to dynamic postures. And, and what cushioned mats do is they basically force postural instability. Mm. They kind of make you move around. And because you're moving around, your muscles are contracting and you're helping that blood flow happen. Um, I definitely know some people who really swear by the mats and they can't, they, there's data to show that they're beneficial in decreasing lower leg fatigue, but there's also been units that have had difficulty bringing them in because of cleaning issues and making sure that there's proper dwell time between cases. And especially if it's getting moved around, that's biomechanical exposures to someone to bend down and pick that up and move it around or clean it. Um, so it's important to know that cushioned insoles uh, have about the same benefit as like the best cushioned mat. So you could use insoles and derive that same benefit. But the oh, idea is really minimizing your static postures. Okay, that makes sense. 
So uh, first of all, before we begin any further, before we go any further, I just want to take one minute to thank our sponsor, Cook Medical. Uh, Cook has sponsored our uh, podcast since the beginning. We're very appreciative, um, not only for what they do for the ASG, but in general for their uh, dedication to innovation and GI endoscopy. Thank you, as always, Cook. Um, So to give people some real concrete examples of this, uh, what are some of the injuries that you've you've been aware of, or even you've yourself had, or your colleagues? Um, what what kinds of things can happen to us as high volume endoscopists with repetitive motions and you know et cetera? What are we what are we what should we be worried about? Like, yeah. So there again, multiple survey based studies, and I think everyone has their own personal experience that they can mm-hmm. contribute to this as well. But there are definitely sort of like the most common injuries are thumb, hand, finger, wrist. Um, and then neck, shoulder, and back. And again, it's related to how we're interacting with our scopes and how we're interacting with our environment. Um, and again, in terms of like women versus men, the women tend to have more of the distal upper extremity issues and the men tend to have more of the low back issues. And the issue, the real concern is when this um, pain or discomfort that you're having is actually starting to affect like the quality of your life and your ability to do things both at work and outside of work. And so again, we all need to recognize pain as an important um, signal that there's some kind of high volume, you know, high volume or uh, loading that's happening to the body that we need to try and figure out how to minimize. Because in the early stages, you might have pain that's just happening at work and it sort of goes away by itself. You don't have any pain at night. It's not affecting your workability. But as you progress to more intermediate stages of pain, uh, what can happen is, is that pain can persist sort of after work at night. Um, it may inhibit your ability to perform sort of higher volume procedures. And then by the time you get into the late stages of a work-related musculoskeletal disorder, that pain is present all the time, even at rest. It can prevent you from sleeping at night and it can result in weakness and inability to even perform your ADLs. And there was an interesting study out of um, Europe of European endoscopists that had kind of looked at endoscopists having pain. And what was really concerning was um, of the respondents reporting pain, like about 20% were in the early stages, but 45% were already expressing having pain um, during most of the day, including at night. So in more in the intermediate stages of pain and 22% were already in the late stages of pain, having pain all the time interfering with ADLs. So I think that this is a a really important signal that we need to make sure that we're paying attention to. That's interesting. And it kind of scares me a little bit because, you know, you think about. You should be scared, Jonathan. (laughs) (laughs) You should all be scared. (laughs) Well, I'm worried about like, you know, um, now when you, I mean, for any physician, right. Then you get home at night, you start taking NSAIDs and other medicines and it starts to really impact. And next thing you know, you've got, you know, side effects of the medicines and all kinds of things. It's just, um, Jonathan's really lips should not hurt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately, we know that in a high percentage of endoscopists, it does. And it does yeah. require sort of like pain medication. And again, in the ACG survey, um, 10% of endoscopists actually ended up needing surgery for yeah. um, their, their pain and injury. So um, unfortunately, it's a, it's a huge issue and one that we really need to be more vocal about uh, to yeah. get to try and implement some change. Yeah. So you... And along those lines, you had referred to, you know, the design of endoscopes. And I'm curious to know if there have been any, you know, um, like adaptive devices or anything that you could put on your endoscope or anything like that, that could help with this, these problems. Yeah. So you bring up uh, an important issue, which is like, you know, we know it's a problem. And so how do we address, um, 
minimizing the issues related to, to endoscopist related injury. And so ergonomics, there's something called the hierarchy of control, sort of like the most effective to the least effective control measures that can be implemented. Um, and the most effective ones are gonna be either eliminating or substituting the risk altogether. So in the terms of the endoscope, that would really require prevention through design. Endoscope and device companies really thinking differently about how we're going to be um, making a user-centered design scope. And the absence of buy-in from endoscope and device companies for that, um, there are engineering controls to consider. So that's you know changing the way we, a physical change to the, to the work environment or to the work tool. So for the work environment, that's gonna be the adjustability we talked about for the monitors and the beds. For the tool, there are really limited things that we can do to try and improve the fit um, of the endoscopist to the endoscope. So there used to be dial adapters by both of the major endoscope companies um, for the right-left dial that would in theory allow us to sort of reach over with the thumb and, and access that right-left dial a little bit easier. Olympus unfortunately recently discontinued their dial adapter, so that's no longer available for purchase. Um, and anecdotally, there was many um, endoscopists, especially female endoscopists and especially female advanced endoscopists who I know that were really reliant on that right left dial adapter in order to be able to scope. So that was really devastating to hear um, that that had been discontinued. Mm. Um, we studied uh, an endoscope support stand uh, prototype device that kind of mitigates the load, the static load of the holding the scope for the whole procedure on that left wrist. So is this like analogous to when you look at an endotracheal tube tubing from a ventilator and you see that little stand that comes out and supports the tubing? Is it like, you're talking about that? Something yeah, so like ours that? Was, ours was a prototype design, but more recently, um, and this is data we hope to publish soon, uh, Pentax has a scope stand that is almost like a microphone stand that you can sort of like rest the scope on. Interesting. Um, and the idea is like mitigating the loads associated with just holding that scope and seeing yeah. if like by... Really putting that load on the scope stand, whether or not that can improve some of the um, biomechanics of our manipulating that control section. Um, I find caps to be really useful. Um, hmm. So caps, you know, we know that they decrease time to sequel intubation and the most recent generation of caps actually can have been shown to decrease withdrawal time while maintaining or actually increasing ADR. And so my personal technique, and I don't have any data to support this as being, you know, beneficial, but I find that, um, to keep my scope as short, soft, and straight as possible, obviously is key. So technique is important. Um, and this is where I think the fellows end up having a lot of issues related to pain because they're still working on their optimal technique. Um, but I find water exchange with a cap to kind of minimize the amount of forces that are required while I'm um, inserting the scope. And then on withdrawal, that cap actually helps me with looking behind folds and um, being able to do a, a, an a adequate withdrawal, like you know, a thorough withdrawal mm -hmm. exam while minimizing my need to do tip to flexion. So I almost exclusively do water exchange, um, a cap, and I prefer pediatric scopes because I do find that they're uh, easier on my hand. Yeah, that's interesting. And I'm thinking about my own um, like cases. And I actually, I was trying to think about like why I do like uh, using a cap on insertion for my, for some of my colon cases. I don't do it in all of them, but I, I do. I think you're right. It like I, I find it easier and less strain on my body kind of using the water and using the cap to gently kind of open up areas and kind of getting through the left colon as opposed to, you know, kind of more forcefully moving your way like I feel like in a standard insertion. So that's interesting. Um, what about, you know, the types of cases? Um, I think it's 
I'm not sure what the right answer is here, but like, I think it's natural for someone to say, oh, well, those advanced endoscopists who are wearing lead and doing, you know, 10 ERCPs a day and standing for long times uh, on their, you know, one hour US ERCP cases, they're going to be at highest risk. I mean, do we have, do we know which types of endoscopists might be at higher risk for this? There's definitely like more surveys coming out in um, advanced endoscopists. Certainly lead usage has been associated with increased risk of like sort of neck and back complaints. Um, and I think uh, ERCP endoscopists having left some complaints related to, you know, in addition to mm -hmm. dials now, the elevator that's used. Um, what's interesting though, is I, you know, I, when I have spoken to a lot of advanced endoscopists, the procedures that tend to give them the most discomfort and cause them the most issues are actually like the colonoscopies because of the amount of, yep. you know, force that's required to, to do that, to do that procedure. And so many of them like, give me any EUS or ERCP any day, but it's the <laughs> colons that really cause them problems. Um, and certainly ESD, I think, you know, it being sort of a long procedure um, and it's especially like can contribute to like, not just the usual forces that are required, but in addition, because of the length of the procedure, sort of like the static loading static that happens load, for a longer yeah. period of time. Yeah. So the yeah. idea of, um, like when we talk again about those controls, you know, some administrative controls to, to try and implement are just more ergonomic education so that people are aware of what the risk factors are and how to mitigate them. Implementation of like a pre-procedure ergonomic timeout so that you're kind of trying to optimize your um, setup right before you get started. Uh, again, you know, we know that once the case gets started, we're kind of stuck there for the entire case. Everyone else around us might leave, but we're going to need to be there the entire time. So making sure that when we start out, we're as most comfortable as possible is really critical. So just take those few mm. seconds to do that pre-procedure ergonomic timeout. Um, and then I think that making sure our scopes are optimized. I mean, we know they're terribly designed, um, but in addition, they actually can be very poorly maintained. You know, mm -hmm. think about how often you have a scope that's just not doing what it should be doing when you turn the dials. Um, and so we know that, you know, the angulation dials are actually one of the most frequent repairs that are required for scopes. And there was an interesting study that actually showed that even after returning from the manufacturer and supposedly returning to manufacturer specifications, that the majority of scopes actually don't meet maximal angulation for up, down, or right, left. So we need to make sure the scopes, as poorly designed as they are, are still working as best as they can. And so trying mm -hmm. to be proactive about implementing an endoscope maintenance mm -hmm. program is important as well. What about the accessories? Um, is there, are there any movements on the accessory front to make them more ergonomically favorable? I do believe the device companies are paying better attention to this, especially as there are more um, female advanced endoscopists who are entering into um, and, and being given a voice sort of in, in feedback for these device designs. I mean, I've had uh, device reps come out and show me, for instance, a clip uh, and tell me, oh, you know, you're gonna need to need how to use two hands to deploy that clip. <laughs> <laughs> and I tell them, like, that's a hard stop. Like, yeah. no, thank you. We don't need this clip. Um, I, there's no way I'm going to, or my tech assistant during the procedure is going to be able to use two hands to deploy a clip. So please go back and make a better clip. And I think similarly, when you think about a lot of the tools that are used for USFNAs, for instance, like the hand span of a fifth percentile yes. female may not be adequate to actually be able to manipulate that um, that needle. And even myself, like when I'm doing injections sometimes with fellows and I'm the tech, like I don't have the hand span to be able to inject. And I actually like, you know, you push the syringe against my chest as I'm manipulating the needle because I can't, right. I don't have the proper hand span. So I'm hopeful that device companies are now paying attention both to the hand size as well as the hand strength of users and designing tools with, again, the end user in mind. Uh, but I can't say that it's, um, that they're doing enough because obviously they're still producing products that when you come in, you have to say like, really, how did this get past your guys's engineering team? <laughs>
All right. Um, I, I agree with you. I mean, some of the stuff that I see, uh, I also think the same. And um, I do remember a couple of years ago, um, one of the one of the device companies came out with a, a different model handle for the FNA needle, which I thought was good. Uh, but I, I don't feel like I've seen enough of that since then. I, I don't even know if that particular FNA needle is still in existence. I'm not even sure. Um, so, yeah, I think we got a lot of room to improve on this by by no stretch of the imagination. Um, in the last couple of minutes, um, can you give us a sneak peek, if any, on, you know, either your own, your own research or any other research going on in the field in the future? Um, you, you know, you talked about the um, prototype stand, which I think is very interesting. Um, anything else that you're aware of or you're, you yourself are involved in in this? Well, I think that because, uh, you know, this has become more of an issue and endoscopists have become more vocal. And I encourage all of your listeners, if they're having issues, to give that feedback back to the endoscope companies and the device companies. We need to be vocal about these issues and we need to let them know that the current device design is not okay. Because you know, at the end of the day, money talks and, and that's what drives everything. And we're still mm -hmm. buying the scopes, right? We still yeah. buy the, the tools because there's nothing else for us to use. And at mm -hmm. the end of the day, we do need to take care of our patients. And so we're still spending that money, but we, we, do, we do need to demand better tools um, for ourselves in order to really preserve our own careers and make sure that we're able to perform endoscopy safely. Um, so I think that this has become enough of an issue that more than ever, there are people who are interested in creating um, different either endoscope designs or ancillary devices to kind of help to assist with reducing risk. And I would just encourage us as endoscopists to really keep an open mind. I mean, I know that uh, one of the endoscope companies, for instance, Pentax actually had a whole ergonomics division that was devoted to trying to come up with a inner design of the endoscope to address some of these issues. And they came up with some really interesting things, but they couldn't gain traction on a single design with the endoscopist. And obviously we've all kind of figured it out. And because we figured it out, we've been, um, we seem to be less excited about something that's gonna have a learning curve associated with it. But we all need to understand that while it may be a bit of a learning curve for us to, to learn how to use new tools or devices, that ultimately if it's better designed, it's overall gonna be worth that investment. Yeah. And so I would encourage all of us to keep an open mind about anything new that might be coming out, um, either from the endoscope companies or the device companies. Uh, at the end of the day, um, we need to be vocal, but we also need to be open-minded. Yeah. That's great, Amandeep. I really found this to be a fascinating talk uh, or, you know, conversation. It's just uh, so interesting to, to hear what's going on uh, by the various experts in our field. And every time I do a podcast conversation, I walk away learning so much. And I, I have to believe our listeners are, are feeling the same way. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, terrific. Well, thank you, listeners. Um, uh, we appreciate your attention and uh, we look forward to another podcast in the future. Thanks, Amandeep. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us and to our sponsor, Cook Medical. You can find the full series at asge.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.